Today we're talking with longtime veteran and senior developer Derek Greer about the behaviors of great developers and how they got that way. Let's get rolling. Software runs our world. It's at the center of everything. And you, a passionate software developer, are at the epicenter. The world needs you to be the best you can be. Welcome to the Driven Developer Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Summerdahl. I'm driven to develop and code because coding saved my life. In a few short months, I went from floundering junior to sought after senior and on to architect and eventually CTO. All the things I've learned through the years, I wanna give back to you. Join me and a new guest every week as we share the tools and skills you need to become a driven developer and make a more meaningful impact on our world. Hey everybody, I'm here with Derek Greer from Spring Hill, Tennessee, and today we're talking about all things senior. Can't wait for this conversation. Derek, will you tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am a software developer. Um, I have been specializing uh, in the .NET platform, uh, C-sharp, for, for a while, 15 years or so. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much me. <laughs> do you do you like to play like racquetball or do you do you watch football? Do you have a favorite team? You know, um, these days, mostly I uh, I do. I try to stay fit. You know, I try to exercise every day. Uh, other than that, my my latest hobbies have actually been more just getting involved in cryptocurrency. I think that's just fascinating and kind of glued to the technical analysis every day, looking, looking at that kind of stuff. So awesome. Have you gotten into like Paxful or, um, or local Bitcoin, Bitcoin swapping or anything like that? No, not that just more, just, you know, um, normal investment. I've been, you know, getting into, uh, a lot with, um, uh, automated, uh, trading bots, uh, so oh. configuring strategies for those. And yeah, so those are really fun. So is that with Solidity and in Ethereum? Well, so the way the bots typically work is that you will pick a range of coins and uh, it will constantly scan them for the technical, you know, analysis strategies that key it into being a good time to buy, a good time to sell. So it, it sometimes may buy Ethereum, sometimes, um, you know, Bitcoin. It just depends on what coins that you're, that you're tracking. Gotcha. So you're mostly talking about like DeFi and not like s specific smart contracts. You're not trying to write specific smart contracts. Oh, no. You're trying to no, no, no. utilize bots to, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've done some of that too. That's, it's super interesting. Uh, yeah. Almost feels like cheating, doesn't it? Well, I, it hasn't been that successful to where I feel like I'm cheating. <laughs> at the at the point that I'm, I retire, maybe I'll feel a little bit like I'm cheating. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, I, I guarantee somebody in there is cheating. So, uh, th th this is such an interesting uh, topic. Maybe sh someday we should come up with it, like just a a, a DeFi podcast yeah. episode, or or just on cryptocurrency. Um, 
Okay, so actually, though, I would love to talk about uh, that kind of stuff. I'd actually rather right now hear about how you got your start as a programmer because you've you've been programming for a while. Like you, I know you said .NET for about fifteen years, but before then, it was something else. So, like, give us a, a little like a summary of of the story. How'd you get your start? Sure. Uh, so I have a very atypical. Uh, entry into the programming world. I had an interesting experience. I guess some of the guys that I knew that were uh, ahead of me when I was graduating high school had gone on to college and uh, they were getting a four-year degree, switching their majors, you know, two or three years into college, not knowing what they wanted to do. And and I decided, well, uh, I don't want that to be me. Um, and at the time I was working, you know, the kind of typical jobs that you have when you're, when you're 18, 19. Uh, and um, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to go to the local two-year community college, which is all I could afford at the time. My high school grades weren't good enough to, to get into a, you know, a, a full-paid scholarship to a four-year college. So I went to this local two-year college in Memphis, Tennessee, and I sat down with a... Um, with the advisor and they had three different tracks for IT oriented fields. One was computer science, the very hardest one. The next one was, uh, I think it was an information systems degree. And the third one was like a more of a computer operator, like a more of an operator level uh, degree. And so I thought, I didn't know anything about computers. This was at a time before, you know, most people probably still, you know, 5% or less of the nation has internet access in their house. I didn't have a personal computer at the time. Uh, didn't know how to type even. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided on a very pragmatic approach to, to this, I decided, well, I'm just going to choose the hardest one or the hardest, the hardest program that they have, which was computer science. And it was hard to me because I was very intimidated by the math classes I was going to have. It, it had calculus requirements. The next level down didn't require calculus. And so I thought, well, you know, there's enough overlap to where I'll just, if I fail out of the first one, I'll just go down to the second tier. And if I can't cut it in that one, I'll go to the, the down to the next one. And, uh, uh, Really got the uh, ended up pursuing that computer science degree primarily because um, I wanted to get a job that would that I could support myself with. And I at the time I was working jobs that I just was not really, you know, I was I think at the time I was working at Putt Putt Golf and Games uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if I were, if I end up as with a programming degree doing programming and I don't like it, it's better to not like a, 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 you know, a path that makes good money than to not like a path like working at Putt-Putt or washing dishes at Ruby Tuesdays or something like that. And then I'll just, I'll just do that and get, you know, go to night school and do something different if that's what I really don't want to do. So uh, it was a very pragmatic uh kind of entry into into programming. Uh, I ended up uh, taking my first couple of courses and just making straight A's. Did it, it just clicked with me right away. Even calculus? No, the cal- the calculus came later. I actually had to do some remedial math classes uh, <laughs> because I had not taken um, some of the higher level math classes in high school, but uh, that came a little later. But um, yeah, I ended up, I worked, I 
about two semesters in, uh, I ended up getting a job as a uh, on campus uh, as a a lab tech, and ended nice. up doing some tutoring in the languages that they were you know teaching at the time. So uh, so yeah, I uh, ended up. Um, that's how I kind of got into it. And then one of my first uh, kind of real, I guess, programming jobs was uh, at FedEx. I got into doing C, CGI, Unix development, writing FedEx.com kind of at the, the dawn of the internet age where everything was starting to, you know, the internet was starting to take off. And at this point, you know, FedEx.com was probably only doing 5%, 10% of the traffic, you know, that FedEx gets, you know, so. Fun fact, Derek, while you were building FedEx.com and the, and the CGI backend and, and, um, and all of that, I was writing software probably around, right around the same time I was writing software that interfaced with FedEx and their wow. API. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we cool. were, we were, we were, uh, coworkers almost. We didn't even know <laughs> I wasn't working at FedEx, of course. I was working at, at other companies that was actually interfacing with FedEx. So uh, I did that for, you know, C programming, a little bit of C++. Ended up doing that for about seven years. Uh, got super, super good at C. <laughs> and uh, Not easy to do. But, um, and then kind of the dawn of Java, uh came on and uh, FedEx.com switched their whole platform over to Java. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. And I just as I was starting to get good at Java, I'd switched to a different department at FedEx and uh, did Java for about another nine months to a year with them. And the, um, the group decided we're going to rewrite this project in .NET. And I was like, oh, crap, you know, because I was just really kind of getting, getting, you know, hitting my stride with with Java development. And uh, here here I got to throw everything away, you know, and just completely start from scratch again, you know. So um, but it was, it was a great decision. You know, I'm glad, glad I switched over and been .NET ever since. So, yeah, .NET's been good to you. Yeah. Um, so interesting though, that you haven't mentioned your introduction to agile and when that actually started becoming, um, something that, that I know is, is still pretty important to you. So there were, there was a time in my history too, where I can, I can look back and I can mark when I was a programmer before and it was pretty good. I could solve some problems. And then the light bulb went off when I was introduced to agile and, and solid principles and like th th this whole agile world of, of, of trying to make better maintainable software. And uh, I know that you had a, a similar time. So uh, could you tell us about that? Yeah. So, well, there's, there's different aspects to agile, you know, there's kind of agile mindset with respect to code and then there's agile with respect to process. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think I started to kind of get introduced more to agile concepts from a code perspective coming from the Java side of things. Cause Java was, um, the Java uh, community was, uh, a lot more mature with respect to practices like dependency injection, unit testing, 
of course, a lot of these, a lot of all the frameworks that ended up in the .NET space were were migrated over from the Java space. So right. um, I wasn't really heavily introduced to it, but I think concepts like unit testing, um, concepts like continuous integration, things that allowed you to move more quickly. Uh, from a code perspective, I started to have a little bit of seeding in the Java, in my Java days, right? Uh, but it wasn't really, and I wouldn't have even kind of pegged that as Agile. I wouldn't have like associated it with Agile at the time. You know, we're talking about 2000, 2002, 2003 time period. You know, nobody was really even talking about Agile outside of if you were in directly in the circles of Martin Fowler and Uncle Bob and, and so forth, right? So, um, it wasn't until I decided to uh, move to Austin, Texas, uh, that that's really when um, kind of my perspective on a lot of things changed. Uh, I moved to Austin around 2006 time period, I believe, uh, five, 2005, 2006, and it was right kind of around the time that the alt.net movement was was kind of kicking off and, and, and growing. Yep. And um, a lot of the guys that, uh, you know, maintain a lot of the frameworks we still use today um, are, are there in Austin. You know, Jimmy Bogard mm-hmm. is in Austin, uh, uh, author of uh, Automapper and uh, Mediator. Uh, Jeremy Miller uh, is there who wrote the very first... Uh, dependency injection container uh, library for the .NET uh, platform, which was, which was structure map. Uh, A lot of, just a lot of other, you know, just really powerhouse guys there. And, uh, you know, so you're, you're listening to a lot of these kind of guys presenting at the local user groups and so forth and kind of, you know, bumping elbows. And you, once you kind of find out about who they are, you start reading their blog and you start kind of following them. And uh, I think that was around the time I, I started to hear about concepts. Uh, I'd heard of test-driven development prior, but really started to get interested in, in test-driven development and first started hearing about, um, I think I first heard of Scrum, the process uh, Scrum around that time, uh, 2006, 2007, uh, and um, kind of getting introduced to it by, as many of us do, getting introduced to it by people who themselves had only been practice, practice, practicing it <clears throat> excuse me, for a few months, so, uh, and themselves not very educated on the process, so you're kind of, you know, <laughs> mist in the pool pit is a fog in the pew, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of thing. But, um, but over, um, over time, you know, getting getting exposed to a lot of these um getting heavier into test driven development dependency injection uh working with object relational mapping tools which uh weren't quite as in vogue you know back in you know the 2002 2003 time period you know but it was they were kind of or in hibernate you know was was yeah. a big uh, uh orm back then so that was really the primary orm the entity framework hadn't been uh, created yet yeah an example of one of those things it was brought over from java because java in java they started out with hibernate right right and uh and of course hibernate 
in Java at the time, and I, it's been a long time since I've done Java, but you had to do all the mapping uh, through XML files, which mm, was yeah. god awful. But yeah. um, but uh, in Hibernate, once um, once Link was introduced, uh, you had gee, I forget the I forget the framework, the the Engine kind of framework. The, uh, Link to SQL. No, not no, no, no. This was within in Hibernate, the uh, Fluent in Hibernate. Uh, okay, that yeah. allowed you to fluently c- configure it and then configure it by convention. That was, man, that was, that was awesome, you know, and that was, it was really what Entity Framework ended up being based on, you know, yeah. is, is uh, in Hibernate and Fluent in Hibernate. They use that kind of as a model, you know. Well, that and the whole, their... like the whole alt.net community coming together and signing this, this vote of no confidence to Microsoft about Entity Framework and like, hey, you got to do something about right. this or we're not going to support it. Right, right, and of course, too, uh, another, another kind of, uh, I guess, point at that point in history that really started influencing me, getting me exposed to a lot of different ideas. Uh, I would, I actually took a detour from web development for a couple of years. I was working at Dell, and they had a uh, WinForms application that was a. Um, it was basically the, the I don't know what they actually called it, but it was it was kind of a predecessor to the uh, composite application block, if you remember that, uh, a way of developing a giant web uh, WinForms application, but utilizing you know modules for for you know separating everything out into components where it can all kind of get married together into a single winforms application so i was kind of fascinated with plug-in architectures and mm-hmm. modular architectures at the time and ended up taking a job working at dell doing that and um they decided that uh they were going to switch from winforms uh and uh move to wpf and uh, there was an opportunity to join kind of the advisory board on, at Microsoft for the um, the version two of the composite application block, which was I think it was ended up being called Prism. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, so I flew up to um, they flew me up to uh, Seattle, and you know I was sitting in a room with all of these you know heavy hitters, you know. Um, Ayindi Rahin had come from Israel and Jeremy Miller and just every, just all the big names, you know, were, were there and uh, kind of meeting some of those guys. And um, so, yeah, it was it was great. I mean, of course, I was in awe of everybody around me. I was like, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I guess a lot of those uh, ideas started to uh, started kind of infiltrate my my practices was around that area era of moving to Austin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, some people who have listened to this podcast may have picked up on, on me telling my story about how, um, how there was this also for me, there was this light bulb moment or there was this, this time when, uh, when, uh, some developers kind of took me under their wing. And so uh, actually I actually want to take this opportunity to let the cat out of the bag. Derek here, that is, that is our guest on the podcast, is, is the, the guy that mentored me. And, and so I can look back at, at the entire, my, my entire career where things have gone well, and I can really 
attribute a lot of my my immense uh, my immense growth to the seeds that Derek planted in those days where where we were working together on on this this project where where we we loved what we were trying to do but no one else in the company cared <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and that's where we we were starting to feel like that's where i really started to feel this need for something like agile like i i didn't know what it was definitely did not know what it was derek you were the you were kind of like you were saying that those other guys in austin were still kind of working through it just still it was still raw for them but they were still talking about it trying to 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 promote it and this is right. where you i remember you saying that's where you were when we were working together on that project and it regardless of whether it was raw or new in your brain it was it was absolutely new to me and you were light years ahead of me and, and because of you and because of, and I hope you keep on doing this, Derek, I hope you don't stop mentoring and coaching others because you have an, a tremendous impact uh, and, and maybe even untold. You may never know the impact that you make, Derek, by, by the, the people that you, that you pour into. But because of that, I, I am who I am today. So, you know, I'm going to clap here. You can't, I can't really clap very well on a, on a podcast and it's only one, po- yeah. one clap, one applause. So it's not very impressive, but, but, um, I, I just, I really, well, thanks, really, really appreciate you. And, uh, and I, I don't, I don't, I hope that you can say, and if, if you've stopped, I hope you start again. I hope that you can say that for the rest of your life, you are doing the same for others. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I've tried, you know, I've, I've, uh, kind of, I guess I've continued to try to, um, you know, be, be a mentor where I can, um, you know, throughout the rest of my career so far. And, um, and yeah, uh, of course, a lot of it is, is not just that, but it's, it's continuing to learn myself, you know, and, yeah. and continuing to be open to learn from others. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of like the story that, that you, you see a lot of times with, with, um, I mean, I guess it's just a very common occurrence, when, when, when we allow it to happen, but because of what you did for me, opening my eyes to some things, challenging me to get better in some ways, uh, talking me through things, helping and being patient to, to, uh, to help me understand and, and being patient with my, also my, my own hubris, because I was definitely full of myself. By the time I got in that job, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm where it's at. Everybody should, everybody <laughs> should be learning from me. And then I, I show up and I'm like, why in the world did they hire me? I have no idea. <laughs> they're going to find me out and they're going to let me go. <laughs> no, but the, because you did that, because you had that kind of patience, now I am doing the same for others. And it's, it's a multiplier effect. And I, I hope that people that I coach end up doing the same. And so that we, we, just, we just continue this, this kind of pay it forward thing, but not just one-on-one, but like, like I, I'm – by, by, by the, by the, by the end of 12 months, check with me, Derek, I'll, I will be mentoring and coaching more than a thousand developers. That's one of my goals. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so you made that happen, Derek. I want to, I want to applaud again. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so Derek, tell me something about, um, what excites you about the future of software development? Gee, uh, what excites me about the future of software development? Absolutely nothing, right? (laughs) Well, I think that um, for me, I think the the next 
of course, it's already begun yeah. years, you know, a couple of years back. But I think the the next frontier is um, is machine learning. You know, I, I think that uh, that is going to increasingly become a very important staple in uh, in in shops and development shops uh, as they incorporate. You know, uh, you know, looking back at earlier in my career, you could get started developing web doing web development you only really needed to know um maybe maybe three things you needed to know a programming language like c or c plus plus maybe java you needed to know html um and around 2000 time period you didn't even need to know javascript because yeah. i remember at fedex they wouldn't even let you use javascript because they didn't want you to utilize anything that wasn't going to work on the majority of the user machine so you only really needed to to know how to maneuver at a command line so you needed to know a, a shell of some sort one programming language uh and html and and you could be a developer and um and these days we know you you can't you can't really, you, you have to know, you know, a half a dozen things really to yeah. even get started. It feels yeah. like, you know, but, um, but I think the future will probably look a little bit like that with respect to some of these kind of ideas like machine learning, that that will, that will increasingly become something that you, you just have to, you have to kind of grapple with, you know, as, as a normal course of, of, uh, of developing, developing. So if you could start, a, a brand new startup that's guaranteed to bring in like a million dollars in revenue in the next 12 months. And it has to do with machine learning in some way. What would be that application of machine learning? Ooh, for me right now with where my interests are, I would probably try to apply it to, uh, automated cryptocurrency investing. Mm. So, yeah. All right, so you you would have basically the machine go through and and decide when to invest. Of course, that that we we, we established that's already happening. Uh, you'd maybe have the machine uh, decide what are some other things that the that the machine learning could uh, could actually help us understand. Uh, well, I mean, you're you're catching me really off guard because I haven't put a lot any know, thought of at all. But well, I would think I, I would think maybe feeding in. Uh, past historical data for technical analysis for various coins oh. would would train certain machine learning algorithms to yeah. know how to more accurately maybe pr predict uh, investment strategies in the future. Maybe so. Could maybe what we should do is is team up and come up with um, a model like like feed it, train it on Twitter. So that it can watch Twitter and the 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 the, the values of of different coins, and and learn the effect that Twitter has on the value of of coins, and sure. predict when man, a coin is about awesome. to drop. Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it, man. Let's just quit our jobs and and go after that right there. And if million could, dollars in twelve months. And if you could wait, certain, uh, I guess certain Twitter users like Elon Musk, yeah. you know, if, if he or says China something, anything, yeah, China, something. If so, if Elon Musk says anything negative about 
Bitcoin, then you might as well just go ahead and, you know, uh, do a panic sell of all your assets because you're everything's <laughs> tanking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So um, speaking of tanking, uh, it's confession time. So step into my confession booth. I'm going to be the priest. You're going to be the sinner. Just pour it all out. It's just you and me. Don't worry. No, it's not like thousands of people are, are listening to this podcast. Who knows? <laughs> this podcast, Eric. Um, but uh, but I'd like to know what is the worst thing you've done as a software developer, and just let it all hang out because you know we're friends. It's good to get this <laughs> stuff off your chest. You know, there's probably worse things than this, but this is the first thing that I can actually remember. Uh, or I say guess in maybe public. more 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 recent history. Um, I think so. I was working for a healthcare company, um, and. I had introduced, and I don't remember the details, but I had introduced a new claims-based authentication uh, design into the system. Uh, and and with, with these claims, it was, a, um, it was based on more of an uh, inheritance of claims. So you could, um, you could assign uh, hierarchies of uh, of claims, to, you could assign permissions to various levels of a hierarchy, and um, you know anybody that reports to you, you would automatically, let's say, inherit the, the capabilities that they have. So, if you're a manager, you should have the permission to be able to do anything that your direct report reports can sounds, do. And sounds okay. Direct directors, so, you know. So it was a you ended up with um, too many claims to fit in a. Um, to fit in a token, right? So you had to, um, you had to just keep track of just the high-level claims, and every time you hit the hit the the website for a new request, it had to, you know, grab your claims from cash and, um, you know, reapply those so that you have your full hierarchy of permissions. And I remember something uh, happening where the caching there. I, I introduced a bug where everybody was getting the same permissions. Uh, and I think the permissions were, it was really more a, an absence of permission. Somebody had come in uh, first and they got a lower level permission set. And everybody that hit the, the site after that, it was giving them the exact same permissions. So there was ultimately just a caching, you know, blunder. And, um, and so the whole, the whole site, the whole company could, couldn't, function for that entire day until uh it was determined what the you know we had to figure out what the problem was and we got back up but i think we lost like a whole day of productivity and this was like 500 workers you know getting sent home not being able to function for the day uh because of, <laughs> because of, <laughs> did the email that went out to all 500 employees say derek oh no 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 <laughs> that would have been horrible <laughs> oh man. Or, or did, were people standing over you as you were feverishly keying in the fix? No, fortunately this was a, uh, a remote job. So okay. I, I didn't have to face anybody, uh, and, and face that shame in person. <laughs> uh, well, okay. I'm, I'm going to bring something up, um, back from, from the old days. And I, I'm actually, this is not a bad thing that you did. But at the time, it didn't feel 
good to some of our teammates. Okay. Uh, so I'll bring it up. It's a fun story. Well, we'll see. I guess fun I'll for you. Judge whether it's a fun. <laughs> yeah, fun for me. Hey, here we go. <laughs> Let's let's uh let let's let's nail uh, Derek up to the cross of of, of horrible software de- development mistakes. Uh, no, actually, so there was this thing that you built, Derek, and you'll remember this. I, I I gave it a name, and I've I've actually never. Now we're talking we're talking about nearly. It's been a we're talking twelve plus years ago, right? Could so, be, yeah. So, but I remember I, I, don't I remember it as a strong statement. To, to I don't forget it. anything. <laughs> All right. So, so here's, here's what it was. It was, it was awesome. And I've actually repeated this, this pattern several times. I have done a few things differently uh, to, to, to try to right the wrongs of the past, but there was this thing that you built that, um, that let me see if I can get my, uh, it's sometimes it's hard to describe things in an, on an audio only podcast that, that have to do with code, but it's basically like, I've got this, this, uh, object that represents a, um, some instruction. Maybe we can call it a command even because that okay. might fit with the pattern that, that you were trying to follow. And, um, and that, that object contains, um, basically the category of what, it, what's, what's supposed to happen. So it might be like update employee or delete employee or, or deactivate employee or whatever. And then, and then we were as developers, as, as people that we, you were developing this whole framework and we were just going to be building things that were consuming it. And so we, we were supposed to just basically, uh, do like your Derek's thing dot, um, execute or Eric's thing dot. Okay. Dispatch. So basically a command dispatcher pattern. Some- and so we would pop that, that command in there and then magically things would just happen in other places sure. and, and who knows where in the world they were happening or what was happening or anything like that. Um, and, and then maybe even as a result, now this is where I started taking it to maybe even as a result of the execution of those command handlers later on, mm-hmm. then other things might actually get fired off domain events. And there, there's a domain event handle over there in, in Michigan that's, that's, that's responding to it and is, is able to do things. It might even call other commands and other handles. Okay, sure. Do you remember the name I gave that? I don't know. I called it, and, and I, I think I'm the one that came up with this name, but I've, I've never forgotten it. I've, I've actually called other things the same thing, but I called it the Magical Joy Bus. I do remember that. Yes. <laughs> I remember a blog article, I think, that you ended up writing on that around that time. Yeah, seriously? With that, with that with that title, yeah. Or something I, about that, yeah. Man, I need to go back and look. Um, that's been a long time. But mm-hmm. since then, I have implemented almost the exact same pattern several times because it actually is a really cool way to, to operate. In fact, the whole CQRS um, architecture kind of it, it can it can start right there with a, a command sure. dispatcher. Uh, so so a I thank you for for showing me that pattern because it actually was really cool. Um, and what did I do differently? So what what did what did the people in our team not like? It was just that whole magical aspect of it. You know, right, it's right. just like like what in the world happens after I dispatch this? How do I how do I map it? How do I log it? How do I how do I know? Uh, and it could be five things. It could be one thing. It could be nothing. Nothing mm-hmm. could happen. Um, and, and so what I've done since then is, is I've just showered that kind of stuff with logging. And, mm-hmm. 
I, I don't even know. I can't think of what else I've done, but I, I've, I've, because of that, you know, I've, I've tried to figure out ways to, to make it a little bit less magical because, mm-hmm. you know, magic is cool. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because, um, so what you're referring to a lot of developers, uh, will refer to that as the mediator pattern. Yeah. Uh, I take exception to that because I don't believe that that is a, I don't see it as the exact same uh, thing as the mediator pattern as described in the gang, gang of four patterns book, uh, which describes more of a mediator being something that mediates communication back and forth between kind of two disparate objects where this is more of a, just a dispatching, a a one way dispatching. Of course you got a return value, but it's not as if you dispatch a message and then 10 minutes later, something dispatches a message back the other direction. That's really to me more of a mediator and maybe, maybe some implementations do that, but the implementation that you're referring to is not, is not really, is really more of a, of a, um, just a disp- command dispatching, you know, pattern. So yeah. um, I've implement, implemented it. I've actually made the, the, uh, the dispatch command, like a, a, a void type method sure so that it cannot return a value mm-hmm. because my 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 philosophy there is that if if you're especially if you're trying to move into like a an asynchronous like a a, a distributed a, uh, cqrs implementation then mm-hmm. your your command handlers might be like i said in michigan and you don't know when they're going to be finished you don't sure you don't even know which the dispatcher doesn't even know which or how many handlers will will uh, will address that command. And so right. there's no way really to have a return. And the moment you give developers the way, a way to return an, a, a value, then all of a sudden, uh, you, you break CQRS. You can't distribute your, uh, your, 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 uh, your, your command handlers anymore. Sure. Sure. So, so, I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, Jimmy Bogard, uh, mm-hmm. has the mediator has a mediator library that, that does this very thing. Uh, he's, he's worked on it for many years now at this point, it's very, very rich with a lot Mm -hmm. of functionality, um, different, different variations of the pattern and pipeline, uh, you know, capabilities and so forth. But, uh, so, um, another more recent, uh, implementation of this pattern is, uh, Jeremy Miller's, uh, Jasper framework. And he utilizes, uh, Roslyn to do some some cool dynamic code generation that um, does away with the need of implementing a lot of the interfaces and stuff that you typically see in these these inter, uh, implementations where you are dispatch, dispatching a a command of you know go delete this customer from the database kind of command and it's having to look for um, uh, a, a handler that implements an interface that right. takes a specific, and so he's able to kind of bypass uh, a lot of the the noise that gets introduced in that in that process through uh, through code gen using Roslyn. So it's it's a really cool implementation as well. It's time for you to take control. Hey, Byron here, coming at you from a different place and time to put a pause to this podcast and call attention to something really important. You've probably thought at times that it's really hard to get traction in your own learning and growth as a software developer. You should join the Dev Amplifier, 
the mastery growth system for software developers. In the Dev Amplifier, you'll receive weekly coaching and quests and assessments and check-ins, all designed to help you grow from whatever level you're at as a software developer to the next level and amplify your career. It's only $83 a month, so stop everything else that you're doing right now Pause this podcast and head over to my website to sign up for the Dev Amplifier right now. It'll be the best decision you make all day. Now, let's get back to the Driven Developer Podcast. You've been working with developers for a long time. You've been able to observe their behaviors. Uh, I know that that software developers are getting cooler uh, these days. I mean, it seems like they wear more turtlenecks and drink more coffee with their pinky out. And I mean, it's just like the software developers are not quite as nerdy as they used to be. Uh, but still, hey, let's let's accept that that everybody's got room for improvement. So, what do you wish software developers would just get better at? So there, there's two sides to it, but I think there's still just a huge a huge bit of improvement that that our industry is in need of for uh, just understanding of and adoption of test-driven development, behavior-driven development. Uh, I still see most of the shops that I go to that they're they are they're thinking of tests last. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. they're writing the code and they're coming in afterwards and putting writing some unit tests in a very late 90s style, you know, uh, J-unit, you know, esque kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, as opposed to kind of adopting more behavior-driven development, you know, a la, you know, uh, context specification style frameworks like RSpec and MSpec. And uh, most, of, it seems like uh, most of the the JavaScript frameworks kind of take a, a context uh, specification approach as well. So um, I just see a, a, but even aside from the style, I see a, a lot of absence of doing uh, really uh, behavior driven or test driven development, allowing executable specifications to drive the design of the code and to constrain the needs of the the implementation to the specific scenarios that you're you're coding to, uh, and uh, I think the other side of that is the the skill in helping to shape user story refinement to where it uh, is a it fits in with that development model. So that it kind of flows into like a testability mindset. Right, right. So that so that you you really don't you don't start that that process at the point that you start coding. You start thinking that way at the point that you're working with your product owner and you're helping to steer the acceptance criteria for the user story that you're discussing. I, I can see how this might might blossom into the conversation that that finishes us off in this uh, this podcast. So we might actually end up talking about sure. just this thing for the rest of the podcast. But um, <laughs> it might even turn into a debate, Derek. You ready for a debate? Maybe. Yeah. All right. um, okay, so I'll take side B. All right, I'll take side B. <laughs> uh, what are those sides? We'll find out. Yeah. Um, so. I, I'm just going to disagree with whatever you say. And okay, then, let's go that. No. Let's go that way. Okay. <laughs> this guy is blue. I have in in years past, especially, loved unit testing, and not just unit testing, but I have 
uh, I have loved, and I would even look back on my career and say the, uh, that, that writing tests first was one of the things that really reinvigorated my love for coding. Mm-hmm. So, so I have, I have test driven development has a very deep place in my, in my heart and will not go away. Uh, mm-hmm. but, um, and, and this actually, if, if uncle Bob is out there listening, hopefully he'll, he'll chime in with some comments. Um, maybe he will, in I that, don't know. In that voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't do an uncle Bob voice. You um, got close there though. Did I really? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. You kind of, you dropped a couple of octaves and yeah, uh-huh, you channeled okay. him a, a little bit. Okay. So, um, so if uncle Bob is out there listening, then please forgive me, but, but I'll probably disagree with uncle Bob too. I no longer believe that test driven development is appropriate on every project. Can you believe that? Yeah. I don't think that I would have ever argued that it was, um, either. I think that there are scales of projects and, um, I would say that they are appropriate for, projects that you anticipate having a lengthy lifespan, you know, that are, is they're going to be complex, have a lot of complex behaviors and, but yeah, there are some things that you probably could do just, just code up something and you don't really need, you know, a a Facebook ad campaign or something simple like that. Yeah. I may, I, I don't think I've ever done a, an ad campaign, so I wouldn't know what would go. But yeah, I mean, in theory, yeah, there are things that probably aren't. Now, I will say, when we last worked together, you're, you're talking a long time ago. And I have, my thoughts on testing best practices have continued to evolve uh, for 15 years. So I'm, I don't think about testing the, the exact same way that I thought about it you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. Um, my current, where I, where I have kind of settled at, and I've been here for a couple of years now. Um, let's take a little detour back to something that happened when we worked together. All right. So um, I was doing, uh, at the time, I was doing pure, trying to do pure TDD at the unit testing level, yeah. right? Unit testing TDD. And, um, we ended up breaking into camps. Uh, those of us that were more agile mindseted, you know, uh, wanted to do these practices ended up kind of taking the back end, uh, development mm-hmm. piece. And there was a, cause we were doing couple, things right. They only wanted there, to give the people that were doing the right <laughs> way on the most there, important, the back end piece. And there was a couple of guys that teamed up and did the front end piece and because the front end guys, the front end guys did no tests at all. Uh-huh. And we did tests for, there was not one line of code that didn't, that, that happened without a test driving its, its need. I mean, we had a hundred percent test coverage, not yeah. because we had test coverage telling us what we missed. It was because we were not writing code that wasn't spawned from a, a TDD test, right? So it was an agreement that we had made as a team. We got together, right, we sat right. down and we, we made this decision as a team. Yeah, we were like hardcore, we're going to do it right. It, we're going to do it 100% exactly right. And so what happened though, uh, was that it came time to plug in what we had built to the portion, the front end portion of what the other team had built and 
things didn't work. And they kind of got a little chuckle out of it. Like, oh, y'all spent all this time doing all this complicated, you know, TDD garbage and, uh, and it didn't work. And we, and now we, we, we are broken. And so, (laughs) and that was a big learning lesson for me because, uh, that, that kind of spawned me, uh, to my next company that I moved on to, uh, I started doing a lot more research into acceptance test driven development practices. And I got really, really heavily, um, into, doing full end-to-end tests with Selenium mm-hmm. and and driving out, you know, I bought this, uh, the uh, there was an acceptance test-driven development book that was wonderful. Uh, growing great, object-oriented great. code. Exactly, that's it. I think it's Growing ar- Object-Oriented Code by Tests or something. I, yeah, something yeah. along those lines. One day you sent me so, a message and said that I should read it, and so I did. And Yeah. yeah, yeah you So really, really it. awesome, really awesome book. Uh, so I started doing that. It was the the outer uh, the 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 outer feedback loop of right first write a failing end to end test that exercises yeah. the the UI and then iterate on internal uh, feedback loops at the unit test level until the outer one passes. And I did that, and it was fun, and I learned a lot. But what I what I what I ended up deciding was that the ROI on investing that heavily in end-to-end tests that execute the application from the UI perspective is just not there, number one. And number two, now I want that's a that's a that's a pretty blanketed statement to make. It probably there are probably some applications where the UI is the you know making sure that the UI doesn't break, maybe that's just it's way higher than maybe some of the applications I've worked on. Right. But most of the applications I've worked on, well, I'll get to that in a second, but what, what number one, I didn't see the ROI in it. Number two, it was still at this point in time. And now I'm working in Nashville at this point and Nashville was not a, there were a few, three, four, five years behind the yeah. Austin, the Austin scene, like most shops weren't even doing dependency injection. You know, yeah. the shops that were doing object relational mapping tools were doing this horrid pattern of, you know, code gen and having like multiple yeah. data access layers, the generated version and the version, horrible stuff. But so they were a little bit behind but what I found was it was very difficult to get teams to want to adopt this. It's, it's hard enough to get a team to adopt unit testing level TDD, but to, yeah. to adopt like acceptance test level driven development. Um, that, that's a, that's a, it was a hard sell, not only to uh, peer developers, but to upper management, you know, teams that weren't used to doing any form of TDD. So um, I ended up settling on, what I have found is, is has given me the best ROI and has been the easiest sell to get teams to adopt is doing uh, end-to-end subcutaneous testing. So these are... Word. Subcutaneous. Yeah, so subcutaneous, you know, the, uh, you know uh, under the skin, right? Okay. It's subcutaneous. It's, it's a... 
it's a style of so this this word actually comes from I think the the and I'm, I'm not going to remember the title of the book but there is a uh, X unit test patterns I think that's the name of the book it's like it's kind of the the testing Bible equivalent of the uh, Eric Evans DDD book the blue book is to to domain driven design it's kind of the Bible for testing patterns right really thick you probably will never read the whole thing just like DDD the DDD book <laughs> some people have read it but um, so uh, subcutaneous is one of the one of the kind of the categories of tests and that's where I picked up this this nomenclature uh, but it's a style of testing that is a full end-to-end test but you're bypassing the, the user interface layer and you're hitting your API directly. So you're hitting uh, your endpoints like a rest, restful endpoints and you're, you're sending, you know, when I send this request, I should get back this response. And in the course of that, you're hitting, you know, you're, you're exercising the full uh, stack of your, uh, except for the user interface. And to me, what I have found uh, is doing that and accentuating that with what the X-Unit Test Patterns book calls component level tests, which are somewhat akin to unit level tests. uh, uh, Yes, unit tests. um, Accentuating lower level isolated tests for very important portions of the code. Like you may have some domain objects that have some very complicated logic, some algorithms. Maybe you write some targeted tests to build that out, but you don't write tests to build out every single command handler. You just test that at the restful endpoint and and it calls the handler and the handler calls the business logic and so forth. So what I found is that um, when a test breaks, you don't necessarily get it happened exactly at this point in the code, yeah. but but you 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 get the value of the TDD value of it broke at the point that you added that if you're doing TDD, you know where it broke because it was the last thing that you changed in the code. So you you tend to it, it, it's a little bit more fuzzy where exactly it happens, but um, it's subcutaneous tests are so much easier to write. Um, than than low level tests because you're not dealing with uh, as much mocking and and test test doubles stubs and and you're not getting into to that level of detail um, and you're not having to deal with the uh, the the issues that come along with uh, you know trying to test through the UI because ultimately what you're doing when you're testing through the UI is that your tests are, are coupled to implementation details yeah. because you can't really test a UI, a web application really, without coupling to specific uh, kind of, you know, X paths or the ID for this and the, stru- the structure of the, the DOM has to be just such or the clicking of that button's not going to work. And you don't, you don't deal with all of that when you're, you know, when you're writing subcutaneous tests. So, so what I found is you end up with about 80, 85, 90, maybe percent of covering the most important things. You don't get the, Oh, you know, Byron changed something on the UI and now a Z index is making this button unclickable now, but 
you know, you do that, you, you handle that with some smoke, some kind of smoke tests at the end, or, you know, maybe, maybe you still have testers, dedicated testers that kind of do some, you know, some, some testing and they catch that stuff. So to me, that's the best ROI is, is that, that approach. So I I've over, over the past few years, cause I haven't had the benefit of, of hearing your very large words being spoken into my ear, like subcutaneous. And, but, but I, I have, I've been doing the same thing in some contexts, uh, calling it just integration tests, you know, right, hey, let's put right. an integration test on that endpoint. Uh, and, and, and often, uh, also when I'm working with teams, I'll, I'll say, Hey, let's do a happy path integration test on at yeah. least every endpoint. And then for certain more important endpoints, let's do, let's, let's suss out all the different sad paths and do integration mm-hmm. tests on those or start doing unit testing on, on the, the different the different things sure. that are going to start making decisions. But uh, I, I'm going to start calling it subcutaneous in honor of Derek Greer. <laughs> well, you know, Byron, I have to use big words to compensate for my accent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I, you're, you're from the South, right? I am very much from I, the South. I, I if, if you tell. did, if you, yeah, you can't tell. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> So I'm going to tell so, you, I'm going to tell you though, where I know you got something else you want to say. So hold it, hold yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. All right. Sure. Um, you're wrong. Completely. I probably am. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So that was a little bit too, a uh, little bit too in your face. Let's go back to the days of, of when you and I were working on that project years and years ago. Sure. We, we were totally wrong. Like I look back on that experience and I, I have a little bit of shame just like a little bit because though I grew leaps and bounds and I learned so much and the, 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 the experiences that I had shaped me in so many ways, looking back with, with my, the, how I feel about, about things and having sat on both sides of the, of the, the, the check writers. So I, I'm, I'm sure I've, I've sat on both. I've been on the executive side. I've been on the, the, the developer side. And, and I've been, I, I have felt the pain from both sides now. And so my sure. opinion now is, is shaped out of, out of that, that experience. And we were wrong, I say, back in those days, because we didn't have buy-in or authorization from the people that were paying us. We, um, now hear, hear me out. I, I can see you're about, okay. to, you're, about to, you're about to jump on that, but yeah. we, we, we were, we decided that we were going to do uh, things a, a certain way. And, and sure. we were going to take these measures that were going to ensure a level of quality that we believed our, 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 the company needed because of maybe the type of software that we were building. But we were, mm-hmm. we were making these judgment calls because we thought we were the smartest person in the room and nobody else is, is, uh, is, is qualified so we would never mm-hmm. dream of bringing those decisions and and the ROI and our view of the ROI to the decision makers because of course they're just going to say no so we might as well not tell them and do it anyway and and that's what we did and i can even remember like the the feeling of a little bit of a cloak and dagger feeling of us like having we we were doing these things despite our boss we were doing things despite the people around us that were tapping their feet, waiting for things to come out. And mm-hmm. I, I believe that, that they may have been wrong if, if, we, if we had presented them a, a good sound argument for, mm-hmm. for this is why we should build things this way. This is why we think you need to care about this. And if they mm-hmm. had said no, they might have been wrong. Time would tell. 
but they were the bosses and they were the check writers. They were the owners of that company's the owner of the software that we built. And we were, we were building entire units, unit test suites that, that even at some point, uh, I mean, they were constantly being poo pooed on by, by our, our bosses. Yeah. And, and my, my, my thing now is that, you know, if we, if we had wanted to, to uh, demand that level of quality, then we should have found a job that allowed us to develop in that way. Okay. So, so I will take exception to something that you said. Uh, My memory, my recall of those events is not, uh, does not include us secretly in the shadows doing test driven development where people, you know, and like, we're going to, we're, we're going to use, uh, you know, these agile tools. And so um, to, to what extent that may have been true, that there may have been, um, I mean, I remember that there was definitely some joking and some mockery that was going on from, from the management staff uh, about some of the things that we were doing. One of the things that we were doing uh, is a uh, pair programming. Yep. And, uh, I distinctly remember, cause I, I've latched onto this. I thought it was funny. My entire, you know, ever since then is a phrase that was used by our manager at the time. Uh, when he would, uh, think about pair programming, he would say, uh, one for the price of two. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so, but that's, that was his way of saying, ha ha, you know, y'all, y'all are doing something, you know, what you're doing is stupid, but he didn't agree with it, but he was our manager and he was, he was not saying don't do it. He was just kind of mocking us. He could have, he could have decided to let us go and get some people in here that don't want to do test driven development, that don't want to do pair programming, that don't want to do scrum, that don't want to do, uh, use Git uh, instead of TFS, um, you know, they could have, they could have said, you know what, these guys, you know, they just don't know what they're doing. Let's get them out of here and get some contractors in here. So that's not to say that there weren't some, some depths of what we were doing that maybe we weren't, we certainly weren't like calling a meeting with the manager saying, you know what, we, we've decided that we both need integration tests and uh, unit tests. You know, like we were, you know, we've decided we're going to use this framework instead of that framework. You know, like it maybe it wasn't to that level of detail, but I think they knew uh, they, they had enough visibility into what we were doing uh, to to voice very loudly their objection if they had wanted to. So. And they did. They did eventually. Like they when, did. I think they were kind of like, "Oh yeah, you guys, it's silly. It's two for the price of one, or one for the price of two. Uh, well, and, I, and and they they were basically not. They were not with us on right. what we were trying to do. And I think right. that they kind of had no choice because you know if the developers are all saying that this is what we're going to do, yet it doesn't produce the the result that that I want as the check writer. Sure. Then, then it, then it, what happened to us will always eventually happen, which is I'm going to come into the meeting with a, a burn down chart that shows this line 
that's not going in the direction that I want it to go in. And sure. therefore, I want to put a stop to all these things that I've already told you are silly. So now, now yeah. you're going to listen to me. And... <laughs> Uh, and, yeah. and, and let's put a stop to it. And I remember at one point you even said, well, maybe we should just delete the, the unit test suite. <laughs> and which I, I loved that statement. I've never, I've never forgotten that, but, but there was like all that conflict around it. I I'm convinced, and I have actually seen this work, Derek. So, so try this someday, um, sure. where, where you go to a, um, you, you, Pre- prepare a, um, a, a presentation of, so- of sorts or, or just prepare yourself to be able to talk about this stuff in, 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 in terms that are understandable. You go to the business people who are going to write the checks, who are going to eventually make the decision whether you like it or not, and, mm-hmm. and they're going and, and just tell them, hey, this is, this is the, the level of quality, the level of maintainability we think you want. It seems like this is what you're looking for. In order to get this, though, we're going to have to do these three things. This is this is supported by the community. This is also supported by our vast experience. The, these are the things that we know need to happen in order to get this level of quality. Are you willing sure. to pay this price for this level of quality? Yes, no, maybe. And if they're not, then we say, okay, then we, we're going to adjust the level of quality to match what you say you want based on what you think you can pay for and then start to negotiate with them. You would be surprised, right. Derek, how much buy-in the whole team has when the so company think, knows they're paying for it. I think I think your perspective is is correct. However, I will say it's a perspective that has been uh, wrought through a completely different path than my career has gone. So we've kind of gone in different directions. Yeah. You've gone for the last 15 years, you have, I would, I would probably say 100% been in consultant mode, right? Yeah. So let me give you, let me give you an analogy. Um, I once bought some 10 acres of land and I was building a house. It was this great Mennonite builder in the area. He was building me a house for $40 a square foot. And, uh, and I was, I was building this beautiful house with this thousand square feet of wraparound porch that was eight feet deep all the way around. And everything was just completely kind of symmetrical. The, the windows on both sides, everything was 100% symmetrical. It was a beautiful house that I designed. I was, I was probably only about 25 years old when I designed this. Had a neighbor that decided to build his own house on one side and another neighbor that used the Mennonite builder to design his house. Well, the one neighbor decided that he was going to build a house um, with two front doors, but the doors didn't look like front doors. They looked like back, like the sliding glass doors. He had two sets of sliding glass doors on either end of his house one went into the living room, one went into to his bedroom. On the other side, the other neighbor, he des- he designed a house, log cabin, and it had a kitchen and it had no eat-in dining room. There was like there was not an eat- eat-in area. The master bedroom only had a a shower, no master b- bathroom. You had to, if you wanted to go to a, take a bath, you had to go to the other side of the house and there was a bathroom over there. So um, as a, like as a general contractor, if I'm the person who's 
consulting on these guys building their house, I can say, you know, well, hey, guys, I, I think it's great that you're customizing these houses to be exactly what you want. However, I would I would like to offer you some advice that at some point down the road, you may want to put these houses on the market and sell them. And so if you're designing it just for you, that's great. But you may want to keep in mind that the marketability of these house designs that you're coming up with are, are going to suffer. It's, you know, your resale value on this house is not going to be as good. But as a, as a consultant, as a general contractor, I can offer that to them and not really care whether they take my advice or not. It's just like, hey, I did my due diligence and I kind of gave you, um, I gave you, you know, the input. If you didn't want to take it, that's fine. Um, but it's another thing that if you and I are going to go in together and we're going to build some kind of condo, right? And we're both going to live there and we're both putting our input in what, what, how we want it to be built. It's a different mindset for a house that you have to live in than it is one that you're going to be consulting on. You work on it for six months, maybe a year, and you're and you're on to another project. So the mindset of a of a developer who may be signing on with a, some larger corporation and they're thinking, well, hey, you know, maybe I'll be here for ten years. Maybe I'll retire from this company. They're, they're making decisions on a day-to-day basis about a project that they themselves are going to be stuck maintaining. So they have kind of a vested interest in doing it in a very specific way. And so that becomes a little bit more of a weighty argument to, this is going to hurt me. It, yeah, it may cost you a little bit, you know, one way or another to go this direction or that direction and how you're, you know, doing it. But it's it's going to affect my day-to-day happiness on having to maintain this code. I might be up at night trying to figure out um, why something's broken because you didn't allow me to write, you know, do a test-driven development approach and have some test harness around this thing, right? So, so I would say, yes, had I taken the path more as a consultant, I probably, and you have to, you have to let people know what's the bottom line to, to taking some of these, um, wrapping some of these practices, uh, quality practices around your, your development practices. But, um, but yeah, so for, from, from a, from a team where, Everybody, including the manager, is really not ultimately the you know the guy making the decision on whether or not he's going to let you do TD and TDD. That that guy was not the guy paying writing the checks, right? Yeah. So um, yeah. So well, so I I totally appreciate your um, your your position because I think what uh, another aspect of that is that that okay I. I am a, con- a consultant is kind of here today, gone tomorrow, gone tomorrow. It's kind of like expected that you're there for a, tem- a temporary amount of time. When you finish a contract, you, you charged enough in the previous contract that you can wait a few weeks before another one comes along and, and, and sure. there probably will come another one along because there's, there are always plenty of contracts. So it's kind of like you can be a little bit more bold as a contractor and, and, and even if they fire you, it's like, okay, fine, I'll go get another contract. Or, or right. um, if you're a consultant, a lot of times, especially if you brought in as a as a heavier hitting consultant, everybody just listens to you because 
You're, you're, sure. you're the, you're the expert. They brought you in for this specific purpose. So I, I, I agree with you. If I'm in that consulting role and they brought me in to say, what, what should we do? Our, our sink, our, our ship is sinking. What, what, what can we do to keep it afloat? And I say, sure. well, these are, you know, you need to stand on your head when you're programming. Then they're going to be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Hey, everybody stand on your head. And so, I mean, it doesn't matter how, how ridiculous it is. They're probably going to do it. But if you, if you've taken this job and it's supposed to be supporting your family, and this is the thing that you're, that you're counting on this job and the benefits and the, the IRA and the whatever else, I mean, all right, the things right. that are attached to it. And, and you're looking at your boss and you're like, man, I really wish I could get my boss on board with this. And I want to be able to speak boldly to this person, or I want to be able to not, not like demanding, but I want to be able to, to say, Hey, for the sake of your company, these are the things you should allow me to do. Not just allow me to do this. These are the things that you should tell the entire development team to start doing. We need, we sure. all need to start doing it this way. Um, I understand how, how hard that would be. To, to say yeah. in that kind of, in that context, because it, it, it really is, it's, it's hard. Now, on the other hand, the job market is hot. It is hot it is. right now. Hey, if you, if there was ever a time to piss off your boss, today's the day, <laughs> right? I fantasize about like being able to be this bold when all of those things are facing me down, like my paycheck and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I also have to, I have to feel some empathy for, for the people out there that are, that are kind of, they really depend on this job and they're, they're really fearful for losing it. Sure. Sure. And, and when you're get, when you're just getting started in your career, there's, you have to take a little bit of maybe a different approach. Maybe not right now, because as you say, that the market's really hot. You, you as a j junior developer probably could say, you know what, if if we're not going to do TDD, if we're not going to do I'm out of here, uh, some some form of agile uh, iterative development, if if you're if you're wanting me to check stuff into uh, uh, source safe, <laughs> I'm I'm out of here because I can get a job in a week, but. Um, you know, in a, in a, maybe a little bit rougher market, you, you know, as a junior developer, maybe you have to kind of, you know, put in a little bit of time and, and wait and leave in a year or whatever, you know, but, um, but yeah, I, you know, I, these days, I, I mean, I've, even when the market hasn't been good, I think when you're, uh, when, when you've kind of established yourself as a developer, the market's always good. Like, I, you know, I've been developing for over, over 25 years now. I don't remember a point in my career that I wasn't able to get a job within, I mean, at the, at the very worst, you know, four weeks, you know, so, mm -hmm. um, and most of the time within a week, two weeks, you know, you're, you're on with another company. So, so I think, yeah, you just, as a, you know, as a, as a seasoned developer, you just establish the kind of development practices you're going to offer to the company at the point that you're interviewing with them. You know, and you, you say, look, uh, I believe in agile development practices. I believe in uh, iterative uh, continuous improvement. I believe in test-driven development. And uh, if you, if your, your current staff doesn't know how to do these practices, I, I'm happy to come in and help uh, mentor, uh, the, the people there to help, help us adopt these. But that's kind of what I would be looking, 
uh, to do the kind of development I would be looking to do if I sign on with your organization. So um, that's the way I handle it these days, you know. Yeah. And I'll add to that, that if you're going to say those things, like I like this thing or I believe in this thing, then you better be ready with some sort of like monetary value based reason if you if you're going to be convincing um or just be ready for them to kind of gloss over and be like okay yeah Derek fine whatever you do whatever you want to do but but then you're also going to have to deliver so if you're going to say you like test driven development like unit test driven development and and it's obvious that your code base is going to increase there's more maintenance load there's there's time spent obviously in in extra coding time to write out the unit test we can we can argue that that uh that, that eventually your coding ends up being faster but but there there is definitely going to be some cost uh and if your performance isn't good enough be ready if it, if it hasn't been a, a decision made on high be ready for somebody to come along and say hey derek you're not moving quite as fast as this this other guy that makes clickety clack noises on your on his keyboard we need you to sure ditch that unit it's a, it's a very it's a very it's so hard i almost think of it as impossible to measure you you have to kind of it's very subjective because here's the thing we've both been on projects legacy projects mm-hmm. where this thing was written 7 years ago and it's had developers in it ever since, different hands, doesn't have a very good uh, test coverage around it. They're asking me to go in and make changes, and it's terribly difficult to figure out how to make. I, I'm scared about what it's going to do to the other parts, portions of the code, and um, if, I, if I do make a change, it breaks. It's hard to debug. Those kind of uh, costs affixed to that exact same project that started seven years ago are, are progressively manifesting themselves over yep. many, many, many years. You don't actually see that the benefit in it and to, for a long lived project, you don't necessarily see the full impact of doing this kind of approach until you get to the point to where it's grown to the point to where, you know, it's too late. A, a, a normal legacy project using legacy in the, uh, the, the Michael non, Feathers the uh, definition. Well, no. So uh, Michael Feathers, his book, um, he, he defined legacy code. legacy code. Yeah. His definition of legacy code was basically any code that wasn't under test. So oh, that is the Uncle Bob definition then. Yeah. It's not, it's not about how old it is. It's about like, if you wrote, te- if you wrote a project last week and there's no test coverage, it's legacy, you know, it's basically his definition. So, um, you know, you don't really, so you really can't argue. It's really hard to say, you know, I can demonstrate to you in the course of a couple of meetings that this, how this is going to save you money because to really demonstrate how it's not going to save you money sometimes takes years and you can maybe show some examples uh, of that, but it's, it's a, it's a difficult argument to make to people that aren't already bought into, uh, into some of these practices, I think. So, yeah. Um, so since I just my- don't waste my time, I, I don't waste my time trying to sell myself to a company that doesn't believe in agile methodologies. I just move yeah. on. Yeah. It just don't work for them. And that, that is yeah. the decision that we get as developers, especially if the market's right. good, uh, then we get to pick and choose. And, you know, it, it, I, I want a ping pong table and I want TDD or I'm walking. <laughs> 
yeah. I'm, I'm going to say that someday. If I ever get to go get back in and, in and do this kind of stuff on a daily daily basis, I want ping pong table, Keurig machine, no no more than five meters from my from my desk and <laughs> TDD. Um, yeah. but, but Hey, it's, it's my podcast. So I get to have the last word, right? Um, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I think that, um, that we software developers need to get better at describing, and I think it's possible describing the benefits of the things that we hold so dear. If it's good, there's a reason for it. If there's a reason to do and, and believe so strongly about, about the, the techniques that we use, then there, there must be a way to communicate it. And we as software developers have got to get our heads out of our butts and be able to, to communicate those things to, uh, to the people around us so that, uh, so that we can get entire teams on board with this, not just one rogue developer over here and not just a team of sure. developers that's going to get shut down after six months because all of a sudden they realize that we're too slow. If, if we get the entire team and the entire company on board with this stuff, then, um, then software develop software developers are going to be happier. Code bases are going to be more maintainable and, um, and, and more people will listen to this podcast because they'll be like, Hey, that Byron guy was right. Yeah. Byron's so, always right. Yeah. There you go, Derek. <laughs> I've got that on recording. I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to come up with a way to like make a, you know, those little ding noises on your computer. I'm going to make, that into a soundbite that every time there's an error, it's going to say, Derek's going to say, Byron's all right. Always right. <laughs> yeah. So well, get with me later. We'll do a really quality recording. Ooh, of it, you know, okay. Like a, Byron's always right. You know. <laughs> oh, done. Done. You just did it. I've got it. I've got it. It's recorded now. Memorex. So, okay, Derek, um, we are, we, this is like, we're, we're almost more than an hour in on this. So this has been a great conversation. You can tell when a conversation goes really, really, really long, it's because we we're just enjoying it. And uh, hopefully we've, we've hopefully everybody has hung in with us on this conversation. So last yeah. thing I want to hear from you Rambling. directly. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Speak directly to <laughs> the, to the junior developers out there. These developers who are, they're just out of university. They're just out of coding school. They are, um, they are, they're bright eyed. They see everything through rose colored glasses and they just want to make an impact on the world. What is some advice that you can give them and not run for their lives? It has to be something. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, with, with respect specifically to developing your, your career in this area, uh, I would say that one of the, um, well, well a couple of things I would say, one, find a mentor you know, find, find somebody that will take you under their wing and show you some of the things that they've learned in the course of their career. Uh, I, I would advise doing that. I would, and it, that takes a little bit of humility, right? Cause yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of junior developers come out being normal people and some of them are incredibly intelligent and really bright. And sometimes yeah. they're smarter than, maybe the would be mentors, um, even though the mentor may know much better than they on different paths to take in development, intellectually, maybe, you know, a, a junior guy may just be way up there on the IQ scale. And it can be difficult sometimes to humble yourself enough to say, you know what, I'm, I'm smarter than this guy, but he has gone down a lot further down this path. And, and I, and I, I'll at least kind of give them the benefit of the, of the doubt and kind of, 
you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones kind of process to, you know, suck up what you can. But I would say first, you know, find a, find a mentor, um, uh, and kind of, you know, take a disposition of humility to kind of maximize what you can learn early in your career. But I would also, you know, seek out, uh, you know, uh, blog articles, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, watching plural site videos, just a number of different outlets for, for learning uh, best practices in general. Um, but I would also say like early on, one of the things that I wish I had fo- focused on earlier in my career was design patterns and design principles. Um, my, my first 10 years, largely it was because of doing C yeah. Uh, development procedural coding doesn't really offer a lot of uh, opportunity for, you know, principles and patterns and practices and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, once I once I decided, you know what, this framework and that framework that I'm in, I've invested so much time in and now is going away and I'm having to relearn, you know, I, eventually I discovered, you know what? investing in patterns and investing in design principles that transcends pretty much everything. You know, it's, it, there's some, maybe you lose some application if you're moving from OO into functional or in in a small degree, if you're moving from uh, statically typed to dynamic language, but for a large, a large uh, portion of it, it's applicable throughout your career. Uh, and it's the, it's the thing that's going to propel you forward in your career is having a really good command of patterns and having a really good command of, uh, design principles. So good advice, man. Good advice. Um, so I'll, I'll circle back, circle back to the first thing you said, which was find a mentor. And, and I, I just want to stress that, um, everything else you said also extremely, um, uh, valid, and and I can I, I can speak to that same thing for myself because once I started like learning about the Gang of Four and about solid principles and 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 things like that, it's like my my brain started expanding. It was amazing, but um, I can I can look back on my development as a person and and I can say that the the, the mentors that I've had in my life have been the 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 source of the greatest leaps in in um in understanding or in expertise or in confidence it's just it just does so much for you and so uh i want to tell my 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 listeners about about two things one of them is uh something that you may have already heard about in in like the commercial break but it was it's that that we have a coaching program where and that's what i I referred to this earlier in the podcast where i want to have a thousand students in, in the next 12 months and, and it's because I believe in, in coaching. I think every software developer out there needs a coach in some way to say, Hey, this is this based on my experience. This is where I think you should go next. This is what I think you should do. This is an area where you're lacking. This is an area where you need to work. And, and that is, that is invaluable is so, so important, um, to have that, that external perspective, especially somebody that is, has been around the block a little bit and, and also has, has a system ready for you. And then on the other side, sure. there's, there's a difference between coaching and mentoring, right? So coaching is, is like the consultant coming in and, 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 sure. and he, he, I'm here for 12 months. And then after that, 
best of luck to you. But the, the mentor is like one-on-one, obviously that, that is like the, the fidelity of that is going to be, is going to be so much bigger. It's probably going to be very dependent on the technology that you're working on. So you're going to get a lot of mentorship. Um, I can't say that for you, but cause you, you shared a lot more with me than just technology, but, but the technology is usually what drives those conversations. Sure. And so, so your mentorship is going to be like that. And so what I would say to everybody on this call or on this, on this podcast that you need to look up Derek Greer in LinkedIn and find out where he's working at the time when this episode comes out and try to get hired there and then try to get a desk <laughs> next to Derek. That's what you should yeah. do. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that'll be a little hard since uh, I've been remote for about seven years. Oh man. <laughs> you need to get back into a cube right. form, man. So right. you can have some, inter- some impact. But wherever I am at the at the time, I can I can if you work at the same place that I do, you know, I can I can zoom with you. I could I can uh, do uh, yeah whatever technology the company's using. There we go. And I, and I can't say <laughs> enough also just about about, you know, maybe maybe the place that you choose to work should be impacted by the people that, you know, work there. So it, maybe you should be asking that. Maybe that's a, a question you should be asking of your future employer who else works here or, or can I get a list of the developers that work here so I can look them up on LinkedIn and find out, I can do a little bit of internet stalking, you know, and find out what their experience is. And if everybody's junior and you're junior too, is that a good thing to do? I mean, like, I I don't know if that's a good career move. Maybe it's, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it should be something that impacts your thought process when you're trying to pick a job. Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, if I get, if I got a chance earlier in my career, I didn't, I didn't know at the time that I was going to get this much impact from Derek Greer. But if I had gotten a, a chance to work with, with Jimmy Bogart, uh, over in Austin, I would have been like, yeah, let me, let me go there. Oh, I want to yeah. work with him because I want to, I want to get whatever he's got to rub off on me. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, juniors out there, you need to be listening to this piece of the conversation. And if, if we have gone over it a little bit too fast, just rewind it and play it back five times, get this in your head, get out there and find somebody outside of yourself who can speak into your life and pour into you. So Derek, how can people find you? How can people find out where you work? So they, I mean, find I, I, out where I work or, or, or like yeah, how can so, they stalk you so that they can, they, when, when this finally comes out, they can find out where yeah. you're working and, and stalk you and, and no, I'm just yeah, kidding. Sure. reach out to you and, uh, and, and maybe, uh, build a relationship. Who knows? Yeah. So, um, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn search for Derek Greer and probably plug in Nashville. You'll probably land and right on my D-E-R- profile. E-K. Correct. Yeah. D-E-R-E-K-G-R-E-E-R. I have a blog, uh, aspiringcraftsman.com. Good one. It's a good one. Uh, And then I'm on Twitter, uh, Derek Greer. Uh, Although you probably will see a bunch of uh, cryptocurrency tweets these days. (laughs) But but yeah, I'm out out on uh, Twitter, so... Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's what's cool about Twitter is because we can we can just kind of tweet on whatever we're kind of into at the time. And if, if right, our audience right. likes it, they like it. If they don't, then they they follow we lose, somebody else. They, we lose, lose followers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I really appreciate your time. Um, and, and one more time, I'll say I appreciate you as a person and, and, and pouring your your experience uh, into me years ago. Uh, and, and helping me become who I am today. So thanks for your time today on this podcast and, and, uh, 
and being here with me. Thanks for joining us today on the Driven Developer Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Somerdahl. This podcast is for you. It's all about trying to help you become what the world needs you to be, a driven developer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with others or comment down below. If you'd like to follow me or this podcast, just look us up on facebook.com slash driven developer. And we'll see you next time.